the truth is that we think we're in relationship with other people, but we're always simply in relationship with parts of ourselves. Right, my relationship with my intimate partner is me being in relationship with the part of myself that's in relationship with her. Which is why when a lot of times relationships end, you're not actually grieving the loss of the other person. You're grieving the loss of the role you played, the identity that you created in that dynamic. If you're someone who's on the healing journey or you support others in their health, healing and growth, having an understanding of archetypes can be so supportive. I found that to be true in my own life and in my coaching work, which is exactly why I wanted to bring Greg back on the show to go even deeper. Now he's got his new program called Healing Your Core Archetypes, a journey of empowerment and anybody listening to the Path Podcast can get 20% off. All you got to do is use code Mike20 at checkout and I'll include a link in the show notes where you can find out more. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to the Path Podcast. I'm Mike Salemi. I believe that uncharted trails make the best life stories. So take a deep breath, put one foot in front of the other, and trust the ground under your feet. Join me in discussions on health, performance, business, leadership, and spiritual self-mastery because these topics are windows into how well each of us have learned to trust our own path. Let's go. Today on the show, we're bringing back Greg Schmaus. Now, Greg was guest number 28 of The Path, where the whole episode was focused on decoding the archetypes. Today, we're going to take that theme a little bit deeper, and we're going to focus on something called the victim triangle. Now, Greg breaks down this in incredible depth, focusing on the victim, the villain, and the rescuer, and their interplay among each other as it relates to relationships. Now, Greg is a holistic health practitioner, a shamanic healer, a massage therapist. This guy has got a ton of wisdom to share with you. I hope you love today's show. So let's dive in with Greg Schmaus. When I was on my walk with Luca today, I was just sharing that with you. It was like a, I don't know, almost a, almost a three hour walk. And like, yeah. normally they're never that long, but he was sleeping. Mm-hmm. And so I was like getting sunburned. I was like, I got to keep going. got to keep going. Yeah. And uh, just to give Lauren a little more time to do her thing. And so on the walk, I got to really sit with the topic that we're going to go into, which is really a continuation of the last podcast we did together on archetypes and some of those key ones. And, you know, relating this concept of, I think you referred to it in our conversation uh, as the victim triangle. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's really, it was interesting when I was on the walk, I was like thinking, well, one, I'm so curious to hear your take and dive into it with you, but specifically in the realm of intimate relationships and how this can be Mm -hmm. applied to that I am all ears. And uh, but maybe maybe first for people who haven't listened to the last show, let's yeah. uh, let's take a step back and if you can maybe explain a little bit about these three archetypes within that triangle and give some some background to it, I would sure. be very grateful. Well, first, thank you so much for having me back on the show. And it seems like the time between podcasts is the time that we go back into the curriculum of life. And I find myself kind of like in the midst of like this 
inner study of myself, which allows me to understand these archetypal patterns on such a deeper level, where it's not something that you're like reading and studying in a textbook. It's something that you're learning, just engaging life. So one thing that I've really learned just with these archetypes is life is always the greatest teacher. Mm. As long as you're willing to engage the curriculum and show up fully. And these survival archetypes that we talked a lot about in our previous podcast is what I built my new course around. And, you know, the survival archetypes are really kind of like the four legs of the table that hold up our sense of safety and security, right? The child, the victim, the saboteur, and the prostitute. These are the four archetypes that we use that are the formative forces that we develop as children to ensure our safety and security, right? So there's a time in which we felt victimized, Mm -hmm. which is a time in which we felt like there was a boundary being crossed, So we develop the victim archetype to pay attention to any situation in life in which there's a boundary that might be crossed. We also have the shadow side of that, which is how we might get our emotional needs met, playing the victim. Like as a child being injured or sick or in pain, and the part of me that got more love and attention for my father, who was a doctor, There was a part of me that said, okay, when I'm the victim, I get more love and compassion from my dad, Mm. right? So we could see how we can use a lot of these archetypal roles to get our emotional needs met, which is why they become the biggest roadblock in the healing process is because we realize that when it comes to illness or pain, there's a part of us that has secondary gain. Mm. And secondary gain is really the part of us that benefits from some sort of pain or illness, Right? Even though on a conscious level we say, I want to heal this or I want to get rid of this, on an unconscious level, there's a part of us that actually doesn't. And it could be very simple. It could just be like, I don't enjoy my work. I have chronic back pain and I'm getting medical leave to go get physical therapy. So I'm getting paid to not go to the job that I don't enjoy doing anyway. So there's a part of me that has some interest in not healing. Mm. Right, which is the essence of a lot of self-sabotage, which then the third archetype is the saboteur, which is the patterns of self-sabotage that many of us, all of us really struggle with and are here to kind of overcome, to kind of step into our own empowerments. And then the prostitute would be the archetype of self-compromise, where we compromise our values, we compromise our integrity, we compromise something within ourselves to try and ensure some sort of guaranteed outcome, right? The prostitute's always looking for a guarantee. Mm. It could be staying in a job you don't enjoy for a guaranteed paycheck. It could be staying in a relationship that you don't enjoy for some sort of guarantee. I remember as a child, like paying for my friend's movie tickets because I thought I was being a nice guy, but I was just buying their loyalty. Wow. You know, so the prostitute, it's all about, self-worth and where you derive that from. When it's too externalized, you're going to compromise yourself. The more it becomes an internal process, then you can come more from the place of like self-integrity, right? So those are the four survival archetypes that really support us anytime we're under stress, anytime some part of us feels threatened, or anytime we shift into that 
sympathetic fight or flight state, which moves us into survival mode, right? Which is why they're called survival archetypes. The victim triangle relates to one of the survival archetypes, which is the victim archetype. And the victim triangle essentially is a trinity of three archetypes. The victim being one of them, the villain being the second, and the rescuer being the third. And these three archetypes are always in relationship with one another. They're always interacting with one another. And you could see this in relationship to your outer world, Mm. but you can also see this all happening within yourself, which a lot of times what we're perceiving in the outer world is just a mere reflection of something happening inside of us. Like literally the other morning, this may have been yesterday morning, I was in my practice, my meditation, and I was aware of a lot of the stuff that was coming up around COVID where like information was being censored and there was all of this kind of stuff about like the authorities and the abuse of power, which a lot of that is true. Like there's no denying that. But I was looking within myself at a lot of the patterns that I'm working through in my own personal life. And I realized nobody censors me more than I censor me. Nobody has silenced me more than I've silenced parts of myself, right? Nobody's been an abusive authority more than I've been an abusive authority to myself. So you realize that there's a part of us that wants to always project the villain outside of us, which keeps us in the archetypal role of the victim. And a part of us kind of gets off on that. But we don't realize that that dynamic is an exact mirror of some aspect of my relationship with myself. Hmm. So the reason that thing in 2020 was so triggering was because it was triggering a pattern that I haven't healed within me. So that's an example of where the victim-villain dynamic that we might project externally is actually just a mirror of ourselves. Now, the three archetypes that are moving all together, essentially, is any time we see that victim-villain dynamic, any time we're in the victim archetype, we're always going to project something or someone else as the villain. And then when we're in the victim role, we're then going to look for something to rescue us. Remember, the victim's always looking to be rescued. The rescuer's always looking for a victim to save. Right, So we have these moving parts, these dynamics between these three archetypes. And like I said, it happens all internally. It happens externally. It can happen internally all within our own body. Let's say we're struggling with some sort of pain in the body. You know, you and I work with clients. We coach people that might be struggling with back pain or shoulder pain. If we're not careful, we could see the pain as the villain. Hmm or our body as the villain, we could see ourselves as the victim of the body or the victim of the pain. And we could look for a supplement, a superfood, a pharmaceutical, or a coach to be the rescuer, right? If I'm not careful in my own practice, in my own work, a client coming to me with pain, I could see them as the victim 
if I'm not careful, I could see myself as the rescuer Mm. who's responsible to take their pain away from some delusional point of view. And then if I'm not able to do that, if I inevitably fail to be their rescuer, I'm going to start judging myself. I'm going to actually become the villain to myself. Judging myself is you're not experienced enough. You don't know enough. You're not powerful of a healer enough. You're not experienced as a practitioner. So I actually start victimizing myself. So you see how these three archetypes are literally set up in every dynamic. And if we're not careful, it's so easy to slip into them unconsciously. Greg, because these these things are at play, like you were saying, in all dynamics and in all relationships with self, with others, in work and intimate relationships, curious if you see a pattern of when someone, for example, whether they're conscious or unconscious of this, let's say, let's just take the victim role. Do you tend to see them let's say that pain analogy, someone is, is uh, my knee pain. That's a, that's something actually physically that I've been working through. So I have this knee pain. I feel victim to the knee pain. The knee pain is the villain. Do you tend to see that victim role also? Like, is it a, a theme that also extends into other areas of their life? Cause I know they're all in interplay, but I'm curious, like if someone is primarily playing the victim in one area, do you tend to see, therefore, the likelihood that they're also playing that role predominantly in their intimate, in their work? Or does it completely depend on the situation and the people that are involved? No, I think it's a a pattern that'll probably show its face in many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, when it comes to pain, a lot of times, you know, I'm a big fan of parts work. You know, and in parts work, you're engaging different parts of yourself and cultivating a relationship with these different parts of yourself. And you see yourself as kind of like a a combination of all these different roles and archetypes that are kind of all happening inside of one individual. And within that, you can actually work with pain as another part. And a lot of times when we tune into the pain that we're experiencing in the body, the way we feel towards it is usually a way we feel towards some other aspect of our life. Mm. You know, a lot of times we might say we have shoulder pain and we might go into the shoulder pain and we ask ourselves, how do we feel towards this pain? Someone might say, I feel really angry. Mm. Well, a lot of times that's actually where the anger is being held from some other aspect of your life. Or you tune into the pain and you just feel like a deep sadness towards it. Or you feel bad for it. That's actually a mirror of some other dynamic. So a lot of times it's actually just showing you a dynamic that's being played out in your life. And it's almost like your consciousness is using your body to show you the pattern. So you can work through it within yourself and see how it's then being projected outward. So I do think it's a replication of some other pattern that's showing up elsewhere. Okay. I can't say 100% of the time, but most of the time it's been my experience. Yeah. And I think too, most, at least in my experience of this, most people, and and largely myself included, and, and it's in different situations at different times in life, so much of this is running unconsciously. Like mm-hmm. I'm just unaware, clients are unaware that they're in this specific area, 
the the self-talk that they're doing or what's showing up. They have no idea that they're predominantly playing the rescuer or whatever role they're playing. And so with that, I know you touched on a little bit and maybe more specifically in an intimate relationship. I'd love to really unpack this. What are some examples that come up and how... Is there a functional use to this triangle or, you know, I'd love to just really unpack that. How does it show up and how can we be in more right relation with that in, in partnership? Yeah. I mean, I can use my partnership as an example. Um, you know, when I got together with my partner, she was going through a divorce. She had three kids from her previous marriage. And so archetypally, you could say, she was in the damsel of distress position, right? And that triggered the rescuer or the knight in shining armor, which is very similar, to come in and be her rescuer, right? So there was a part of me from the very beginning that really identified with that role mm-hmm. of being her rescuer. Were you aware of that? Fully aware, conscious that it was, that's what you were... At the time? Yeah, Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I started to become more aware of it once it started creating pain in my life. Hmm. Where I could find that any time I was playing the rescuer, yes, there was a part of me that was getting my needs met because it allowed me to feel valued. It allowed me to feel needed. It allowed me to feel empowered in a certain way not realizing that my power play was actually keeping her in a very disempowered role because me being in the rescuer archetype locks her into the victim archetype, right? Because the rescuer needs the victim. If the victim's empowered to take care of themselves and be independent and sovereign, then the rescuer in me doesn't have a job anymore. Mm, The whole system falls apart. The whole system breaks down and also... One thing that I've had to work through in my own life is a lot of the ways in which I have projected my partner's ex as being the villain, right? Because in order for her to be the victim, I need someone else to be the villain, right? So that allows me to be the rescuer, which that requires a lot of deep shadow work because What that does is that portrays him as being wrong in some way, which allows me to feel righteous in some way. So you could see it's, it all has to do with the way our ego structure is formed and the roles that we attach ourselves to, to feel a sense of like self-worth, self-esteem and self-value. Right. So this was a dynamic that goes back to my childhood where maybe I felt like I was my mother's rescuer. And I saw my dad as the villain. So you could see these dynamics repeat themselves until they create enough discomfort in our life where it might be me saying yes to things in the relationship that start to create some anger or resentment inside of me. And I realized that, wow, I'm saying yes from a place that's not just joy. I'm saying a yes from a place that there's strings attached here. There's a part of me that needs recognition. There's a part of me that still needs validation of, Greg, thank you so much for showing up in the way that you have. Well, if I'm really showing up from my heart, I shouldn't need that, right? It should feel good just to show up in the way that I am and the impact that it's having. 
So you start to realize that as these archetypal roles break down, what you're being called into is a renegotiation of contracts, which is she's not the victim anymore. She's not the damsel in distress anymore. She's very fit and able to take care of herself, always has been. Hmm. Remember, it's always been my projection, Hmm. right? Which then leaves me saying, okay, well, the rescuer or the knight in shining armor is not needed anymore. So what archetype are you ready to step into? And a lot of the pain in our life is created and a lot of the healing crisis happens when we're still attached to the old roles. We're still living out the old contracts that have expired, but we haven't really stepped into the new one, Hmm. right? Which could be more just a sense of energetic independency and sense of freedom and empowerment of, I know she's able to take care of herself. I can go take care of myself and I can show up in a way that feels good in my heart and good in my body. And when I do that, and when I know when a clear yes is a yes and a no is a no, then I don't need as much in return for me to feel valued within myself. And from my experience, the body is the best compass. The body is the best feedback mechanism that's showing you how you're in relationship with everything, Hmm. right? For example, there there was a time in which, you know, one of my partner's sons needed to be driven back to school, which was like three hours away. And she was dealing with like a lot of stuff going on in her life. And she asked me like, Greg, would you be willing to like take him back to school tomorrow? And it felt really good in my body. I was like, yeah, I'd I'd love to. It would be, you know, an honor to do that. And then later that evening, I was asked, hey, can you pick up my other son from his friend's house? And as soon as she asked that, I noticed my heart like turning Mm. and like going into this stress response. Mm. And there was like this resentment already coming up inside of me. And I knew that was my body saying, Greg, that's a no. Tomorrow is a yes, because it really feels good in your body. Tonight is a no, because you can feel what's happening inside of you if you say yes to that. Now, the rescuer in me would have, would have overridden that and said yes, but there would have been all of that emotional debris that was going to wind up inside of me. And that was something that I had to say no to. Yeah, that's such a great example. And what What's so evident to me in just already in whatever 15 minutes that we've been chatting is just really how seductive and like tantalizing these roles can be, Uh, especially if there's a history there or maybe that's what was modeled to us or whatever the story is of how we grew up and our experiences and getting our needs met, etc., And I can totally see, and even with experiences in my life, yeah, just really how seductive it could be. And so one of the things that you you said earlier was something to the effect of it requires uh, a renegotiation of some sort. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, while you personally, Greg, can be more aware of these patterns within you and the projections and all of that, I imagine too, it takes in a relationship two to tango. (laughs) And so... 
Can you share a little bit about what did the renegotiation look like? Anything you can share maybe from her perspective or what you know of her perspective as that living out that role? Well, it's still in the process. But what I can share first off is this is one of the most common causes for self-sabotage, which is there's a part of us that knows that when we step into our power, sometimes shit hits the fan, right? Sometimes relationships get turned upside down. Sometimes relationships end Mm. because you realize that certain people were getting their needs met by being in relationship with the less empowered version of us. The part of me that would override that intuition in my body and say yes to her anyway, right? The, the chronic people pleaser that would say, well, it's a no in my heart, but if I say no, it's either going to disappoint her or create some conflict. So in order to avoid the disappointment and the conflict, I'm going to say yes instead. Now, now, she might get her emotional needs met and her just physical needs met just in general by me playing that less empowered role. Now, this is not the case with my partner. I'm just saying more hypothetically. So the saboteur says inside of me, Greg, saying no to that, you know, might be inconvenient. It might create conflict. It might create stress. So I think you should say yes and just keep the peace. The saboteur knows that when you step into your power, everything changes. Relationships change. Your relationship with everything changes. And therefore, there's an inconvenient aspect to the ego, right? It's unfamiliar. It's uncharted territory. So that's a lot of the self-sabotage is just keeping you in the familiar contracts. Even though it feels disempowering, it feels safe on some level. But the renegotiation is a scary process, Mm. Because you're not sure if the person you're in relationship with is going to want to be in relationship with the new version of you, right? So this is why, you know, people go through deep healing and there's a lot of divorce. You know, people do a lot of inner work and there's a lot of, you know, partnerships that end up parting ways. Mm. And that's not a negative outcome. It's just that it's not a vibrational match anymore. And the old contract that you got together with is null and void. So now the two are better off parting ways, you know, and finding partnership elsewhere. But if you do this consciously and both parties are willing to grow through it, then you sit down and you explore this. And this is why, you know, I do a lot of archetypal work in my coaching practice. You know, you and I have gone through the archetype wheel. Um, I have the new healing your core archetypes program. And these are all very conscious ways that two individuals can explore their core archetypes and see where some of the dynamics have shown up in which we've given our power away. Mm. Because the truth is that we think we're in relationship with other people, but we're always simply in relationship with parts of ourselves. Hmm right? My relationship with my intimate partner is me being in relationship with the part of myself that's in relationship with her, Mm. which is why when a lot of times relationships end, you're not actually grieving the loss of the other person. You're grieving the loss of the role you played, 
the identity that you created in that dynamic. A lot of it is really your relationship with your own power and the other person's just mirroring that back to you, where you are in your power or where you give it away. Mm. And the shadow side of these archetypal contracts is where you give it away. The light side of these archetypal contracts is where you step into your power, right? So it's really two people coming together to explore their relationship with their own power. And healing the victim triangle is really about healing your relationship with your own power, right? The victim needs to feel empowered within itself. The rescuer needs to learn how to develop an internal sense of value and self-worth so it doesn't have to control and manipulate others. And then the villain, wherever it's being projected, once you heal those two, then the, the villains usually kind of dissolves because it was usually an illusion in the first place. Mm. It was just a projection, right? Me projecting my partner's ex-husband as the villain is really just a projection of my own belief system. It's a model that I created that allows me to feel righteous, right? So once you really reclaim your power and kind of heal these patterns, a lot of those projections start to subside. It's a beautiful process, but it's a scary process. Because you go, you go through so much reconditioning and reprogramming of old childhood patterns, you know, where I felt like it was my job to micromanage my mother's emotional experience. Mm. And that's what allows me to feel safe and secure. And then all of a sudden I'm projecting that onto my intimate partner, you know, so it's the child in me coming back to the survival archetypes. It's the child in me that I'm still trying to protect and preserve with some of these, you know, old dynamics. And once I start doing that work within myself, which I take people through in the program, that's when we can really start to renegotiate those contracts. So the truth is, yes, you're doing it together, but you're really doing it within yourself. Mm. Because it, yes, there's a person you're in relationship with, but they're just kind of like a placeholder. They're a mirror. You can take one partner out, put a new one in, and you're, you know, you're still in the same dynamic. Why? Because it has nothing to do with them. It's all the patterns that are playing out within you. And that's how, why in relationship, when we look at the, let's just say the people that we date in life or the relationships, that the, the marriages that keep repeating and repeating, oftentimes it's the same kind of like uh same shit different smell it's like yeah. these things keep recycling and and i think though what's really important is you know for example with family the concept of marriage or, or marriage with kids like you know obviously the divorce rate is so high you know there can be an ex and and, and rightfully so an expiration point in certain relationships However, when there is a, a contract, for example, of family that like, yeah. you know, I have my parents, I have my parents for life, right? Or like the, what, what marriage means to me and having kids. And so when we have these relationships that I don't want to say are like locked in, but there is, there is a, a deep, deep, firm contract within them, either again, through blood or through choice and through contracts of marriage, et cetera. You know, when someone is, what's coming up right now is, let's just use the example of like an, an intimate partnership. Let's stay on that theme. But when someone, when a, when a husband and wife, whatever it is, are really, really going through it and they both are so in it, yeah. 
so mm-hmm. in it. One, that they don't even realize that they're in it. There's a lot of interchange between villain, Punisher, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. What might be within themselves or within the partnership? I just have this, this vision of like, the, like this fire, the relationships on fire, literally yeah. and figuratively. What might be something that you might be able to encourage or invite people in to bring some cooling to the relationship if this dynamic is mm-hmm. so driven hard right now? That fire is usually an unconscious need for space. And I think a lot of times anger that gets projected onto others is really the space that we are trying to create that we don't know we need. (laughs) And it's the space for us to be with ourselves. A lot of the anger is literally us energetically trying to push someone away, which the ego perceives as I'm blaming you for my experience. But on a soul level, it's you're actually pushing them away to create enough space for you to be with you. So I think one of the missing pieces to a lot of those types of relationship dynamics is a lot of times partners are trying to work through things together where in fact they actually, and this doesn't mean you need to like travel elsewhere. It just could be like, I'm going to go into the bedroom and you're going to be outside or whatever. And we're going to spend time with ourselves. We're going to be with ourselves. We're going to engage whatever's rising up in us. And when we're back in our hearts, then we're going to come together and share. You know, I think one thing that relationships don't honor enough is space. The ability to give someone else space. The ability to take space for yourself. And then once you can do that, Only then can you hold space for the other. If you're too entangled, then what happens is you're constantly seeing yourself in the other person's narrative. And you're constantly seeing them as part of your narrative. Like, you're the cause of my pain. I'm the cause of your whatever. Well, if you're still seeing each other in the other person's narrative, you can't actually hold space. Because it brings up a lot of guilt, shame, and defensiveness, right? Because we don't want to feel like, oh my gosh, am I the cause of your pain? Mm. It's like, no, your partner is experiencing pain and you have the opportunity to hold space for it. Even if her ego structure is trying to blame you for it, if you can see through that and realize that you're not, you're really not a part of her narrative, then you can actually show up for her, right? So I love this idea that you can only hold space for another person when you've completely extracted yourself from their narrative, right? Because if you think you're the cause of any of it, you're always going to have some guard up, right? So that's where I think space is the most powerful medicine. And the health of your relationship with space, giving, taking, and holding, is really the essence of the health of any relationship. It's like the prerequisite. But unfortunately, where people get into trouble nowadays is people either don't take the space to be with themselves or don't know how to be with themselves because there's so many distractions that are readily available, whether it's food, technology, social media, things like that, 
where people really aren't being with themselves in an intimate way, when that's not there, it's impossible to really be intimate with another. You know, so I think it's space. Dude, I lit up inside when you said that. And I think that is such a beautiful and powerful point that space is potentially one of the hallmarks of a healthy relationship. Like that is so important space for ourselves to have time with us to get to know ourselves at a deeper level to get to recharge. So of course, when we show up in relationship, we can do so from a place of our needs are getting met. But also too, what I tend to see, and I think you and I maybe briefly chatted about this on another phone call, which was, you know, that space is absolutely critical to be with ourselves. But then also what I tend to see in relationship too is when couples make so much responsibility or so much weight that that other person needs to be there everything. And also space, for example, like the work that I've seen in just the men's only container or let's just say women only container, there is an inherent level of safety or just certain conversations that are just easier to have or just happen to flow more or just you get to uh, see that we are so much more similar than we are different and realizing that there's just something unique and special that when men get together with just men in those containers in that space. And, and also too, it's the polarity. When men are being with men, even if they did nothing other than just walking, talking, and being in nature, that masculine essence inside would strengthen. And I don't think I've met one guy who has come to any event that we've run, or even myself, who has been in a container with men, been gotten space, physical space from the relationship, returned back, and their sex life, their passion, like their perspective, like there is this a craving that happens. And I do yeah. think also that longing and that polarity is really important because that's what also creates the attraction. That's why I reached out to you a couple of weeks ago for the men's work mm-hmm. is also because I've always tended to be more of like the lone wolf who tries to figure things out himself, work through things himself, not have like a big like social life. Like I've always been very kind of in that archetype of the hermit. And, you know, what I realized is I started to become overly reliant on my partner whenever I was working through certain things. Mm. So she also became kind of like the rescuer. And I realized that in order to have a healthy relationship dynamic there, I need to go elsewhere for the type of support that I was looking for within the confines of the relationship. You know, so that's why I had reached out to you and your work is so beautiful Mm. is you give men an opportunity to have that, which then translates into way healthier relationships in their intimate life. You know, I look back and I could see, you know, even that goes back to my childhood where my mom was the rescuer and she was always the person that I would go to in times of crisis, Mm. you know, and that just translated into my current relationship. But I had a conversation recently, you know, talking about like these kind of renegotiation of, of roles and contracts and archetypes. And one thing my partner said to me is, Greg, I would love for you to build more fires. 
because she she just loves fires. Okay, like, so actually building more fires. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> literally. Or okay. in a fireplace, literally. Yeah, <laughs> okay. we're talking literally. <laughs> and all of a sudden, like, it landed on me in a weird way. And what was coming up for me, there was like this silence. And she was like, Greg, you're not responding. Like, what's coming up for you? And I was like, I realized that I've never really taken the time to build you a fire because I always thought I was putting out fires, which was my role of the rescuer. So you see, the fire conversation is part of the renegotiation of the contract. The rescuer is always looking to put out the fire. The knight in shining armor is always looking to put out the fire. The king is the one that builds a fire. So what she was saying is, Greg, I don't want you to be my rescuer anymore. I want you to be the king. Just that conversation about building fires was a renegotiation of archetypal contracts, which it just, that's why it stopped me in my tracks because I knew exactly what was happening. So that's just an example of how that can happen in a very simple conversation if you just pick up on it. I love that. Yeah. And one one last thing on this specific topic, at least, that I want to dive into is I'm thinking of just like common dynamics that we tend to see in intimate relationships and continuing to unpack this in relation to that triangle. And for example, whether it's male or female, doesn't matter to me, but when you have one person that is, let's say, financially the primary breadwinner, mm-hmm. and there is... Uh, you know, let's just say the rescuer role in that. And for whatever the reason, that's the dynamic at play. What insights invitation can you offer in that situation where there is clearly someone who has, I guess you could say like a role of power in that regard and to make sure like to bring that also in more healthy relations so that it doesn't show up dysfunctionally or doesn't spill over into other things? Yeah, I think a lot of it is where do we derive value, Mm. right? The man might derive value from being the provider, whether it's financially, you know, physically. The other partner has to derive value in some other way. You know, so a lot of it comes down to, I think, how we value ourselves. What we see within ourselves as our unique offering. Mm. And when we can fully align with that, of this is what I have to offer and see that very clearly, then we can stay in our own power and not fall into some of these, you know, different archetypal patterns. So I think that's, that's a very big thing. And a lot of times when our sense of value is too externalized, especially in the victim triangle, and I can give a clear example like recently how that showed up then that's where it creates things like anger and resentment and you know a lot of the kind of emotional stuff that comes up in relationships you know my partner works as a medical doctor she does holistic and integrative medicine super busy practice like very full work life and i have my coaching practice i have a lot of the work that i do And a lot of times, you know, over the years of us living together, there was a part of me that always liked to be the knight in shining armor, which was in between clients and in between meetings, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that I get dinner ready. Mm. So when she finishes work, she walks into the kitchen and sees dinner is already ready. She doesn't have to worry about it. 
And that's going to feel awesome for her. And that's going to feel awesome for me to do that service. Now, a lot of times that is like a beautiful thing. Like, that's awesome, Greg. Like, congratulations. But there was a, there was a day quite recently where I walked into the kitchen to prepare food and she had already done it. And instead of being like grateful for that, which I was, there was also a part of me that was angry. That's like, that's my thing. Like, that's how I derive self-worth. That's how I value myself in this relationship. And there was a part of me that was like feeling like she took that away from me, which is really just my rescuer. Because who, who are you without that? Yeah, without me preparing dinner for the family and having it ready, when we sit down at the table, am I still valued? Do I still see my own worth? So you could see how a lot of it comes down to where do you derive self-worth from? Wow. Where do you derive value from and what do you feel like you have to offer? Do you only see value in the things that you do for people versus do you see your presence as a gift for people, right? Just your presence might be enough. Just your energy balancing an environment might be enough. You don't need to like run around and do a million things, right? So it's where do you derive value from that I think is the key and the prerequisite to staying in empowered roles and relationship. Oh man, I love that. I love that, dude. I think that is so valuable for anybody to take away and to not only explore that within themselves, within the relationship dynamic, but then potentially equally as important to have that conversation, open the communication and and share what's our viewpoints on life? Where do we derive value? Where do we see we do and experience that in the other? Like for example, I'll use just my the dynamic of my relation or the mm-hmm. structure of it right now Luca's six-ish months old, and so he's incredibly codependent on mama. Yeah. And right now, like Lauren is a very capable woman, professionally in many aspects. And just the nature of we've decided we don't want to bring in a nanny or anything like that, at least right now. So I'm the primary breadwinner, and she is mm-hmm. taking care of Luca during the day so I can work and provide financially. And now I've I watch Luca a lot as well, weekends and early evening. And so just having that experience, I know viscerally how much goes into and I don't even obviously I can't breastfeed, but like there is so much that goes into being a mama bear, like mm-hmm. energetically, physically. And so I value that role so much and it's evident, but also it shows up in our conversations. And so I really feel at least right now specifically, like there is an equal exchange and spoken and unspoken of what our contributions are. And it's a beautiful piece. But if I didn't see that, like if I, you know, if there was an expectation, you got to be mama and every single night, there's an expectation, you got to put dinner on the table and you got to keep the house clean. Like I recognize and realize how much that role requires. And so if the house is a little bit more messy or whatever it is, but if I didn't value that, and didn't see the value in it, like, I could be a real dick. And so I think this this triangle is really, really just absolutely critical. And I want to connect this triangle to something that you and I also discussed that I'm fascinated by as kind of this final mm-hmm. segment. But 
if you're down to connect this triangle to exploring generational trauma or things that we inherit from mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, and the lineages behind, how does this triangle play out in that? And let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah, all these archetypal patterns are patterns that reoccur generation after generation. Mm. And most of these are learned patterns from our childhood that we picked up from our parents, which they picked up from their parents, and so on. Now, if there is a big trauma in a family, that can magnify some of these dynamics. You know, in my own family, my grandparents were Holocaust survivors. So Mm. there's like a big, like, ancestral trauma. And... You know, if I kind of just like tune in right now to like, what is the pattern in my own family? What I kind of see is, you know, my grandparents went through probably like as horrific of a trauma as you could ever like imagine. So of course, as they come to the U.S. and they're like having kids, one instinct they have is to try and protect the next generation from all the trauma that's unhealed in themselves, right? So they're kind of trying like shield their children from being exposed to it. But children are smart, right? Children can kind of pick up on it. So what happens is the child of a parent who has all of that stored trauma the child is going to want to make sure that they don't activate it, Mm. that they don't trigger it. So they might kind of feel like they're walking on eggshells or they feel like they have to censor themselves to make sure they don't activate something in their parent that might be too overwhelming for them to process. Right? So you start to see kind of like a victim rescuer dynamic. And now if I look at my childhood, I feel like there was a similar pattern that got passed along that if you say or do something that activates someone's pain or someone's core wounds, then you're the villain, Mm. right? They're the victim, you're the villain, and now you're responsible for fixing it, right? So you could see victim, villain, rescuer. So a lot of the archetypal contracts that I signed unconsciously as a child is it's not okay to trigger people. It's not okay to upset them. It's not okay to speak your truth or to express yourself authentically if it's going to make them uncomfortable, right? So you want to tailor yourself to make sure that you don't trigger anyone else's unhealed wounds, right? So, you know, that's another contract that I'm renegotiating in my own life because I realize if I'm always trying to protect someone from their wounds, I'm actually protecting them from their own healing. So I'm actually stunting their healing process by protecting them from feeling a wound that's unresolved. Mm. It could be, I know this person has an abandonment wound, so I'm not going to take my need for space. (laughs) Because I know if I take my need for space, it's going to activate one of their old traumas. But that might be exactly what they need to liberate themselves from that old paradigm. Right. So you could see how the generational trauma kind of trickles into all these different dynamics, generation after generation, and how I'm now renegotiating a contract in my own life that probably originated with that, you know, original trauma. 
I think one of the things that that I really appreciate about you is I see so much of myself reflected in you and like our similar mm-hmm. backgrounds and the challenges. And so it's like speaking to you, I get to see such a cool reflection of what I'm still working on, where I've struggled in the past so much. And so like every time we connect, I just like, damn, I got a brother right here. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, one of the areas that this shows up for better and for worse or for challenge and opportunity in my life as an example is as a coach. And the Mm -hmm. thing that I've really been working on is, I think the saying is, um, uh, comfort the disturbed and disturbed and disturbed the comforted. And Mm -hmm. so like being willing to, you know, engage, not necessarily in conflict, but to point out things. I have this big part of the role is to reflect back, to hold space, to empower the clients, but also to reflect back or to, uh, help the, the client, uh, shed light on things that they can't see. But if we are too afraid within ourselves as coaches, therapists, whatever you want, healers, whatever you want to call leaders, then we are in fact enabling the same behavior. But it it's more within ourselves that we have to reconcile that. And that is something in recent years that has become, it's really pushed me to my edges. And that is a direct, the more that I've found, I don't want to say comfort and ease, but the more that I've worked on that and continue to, the greater the results that clients are experiencing because I'm willing to go there myself and therefore I can have the courage to share that with, with someone else if it's yeah. something that, that shows up. Something very simple that I've learned recently that's helpful in that regard is to differentiate danger from discomfort. And a lot of times what is really just uncomfortable, we perceive as dangerous. But remember that if it's not threatening your life, it's just threatening your ego. And if we can differentiate what's dangerous, which is like a lion chasing you or someone actually like being a threat to your survival in that moment, like if it's not actually threatening and dangerous, it's just discomfort. Mm. And discomfort is safe, right? Danger is not safe. If you're in danger, get the hell out. But if you're uncomfortable, you're also safe. Wow. So if we can differentiate the two, a lot of times our old conditioning is if it's uncomfortable, there's danger. But as soon as we can separate the two, now we have more freedom to step into discomfort knowing that it's also safe. Damn, brother. (laughs) I was so fired. Thank you for sharing that. You know, when it comes to generational trauma, as we're having this conversation, a lot of what we're talking about is the victim triangle, generational trauma, the shadow things, the things we cannot see, the things that are repeating without or with our awareness that are causing pain, dysfunction in ourselves, in relationship, all that. This might be a dumb question, but I'm just curious, you know, when it comes to generate things that are passed down to generation, we typically only associate with the negative, with the pain that kind of like, I don't know, remodels the nervous system and that gets yeah. passed down. Do you yeah. tend to see positive traits or the light sides of, of uh, let's just say any of that passed down as well? Or is it the pain because sure. it's the most, I don't know, triggering to the nervous system? Well, it's the pain that is 
what limits our freedom. So that's where we're always drawn because we're always drawn to what's limiting my freedom the most. But yes, there's always like beautiful positives. Like if I think to like my grandparents, like, you know, my grandfather was a resistance fighter in the woods at like age 17, like living in the woods, like, you know, partnering with different partisan fighter groups and kind of like building these you know, resistance groups against like the Nazis. And like, they were doing like incredible things like, you know, rescuing families and, you know, hiding children. And like, so like the amount of like courage and strength and fortitude that was required to like work through something like that, not just for yourself, but as a teenager to like be supporting like hundreds of other individuals like in the woods for like two and a half years. Like there's so much strength that I can draw on in that. Mm. You know, when I used to be an athlete, you know, my grandfather, who I'm talking about passed away right when my mom was pregnant with me. So it was almost like he was on his way out as I was on my way in. Mm. And so I never met him in physical form, but Ever since, as a ch- ever since I was a child, that I, I would always talk to him. I would have conversations with him. And when I was like playing golf tournaments or, you know, playing soccer games, and I was like needing an extra push to like, you know, get through something, I would always call upon him. Hmm. You know, I would always call upon the strength that I knew that he represented given the trauma that he, mm. you know, moved through in his own life. So... Yeah, I think, you know, within every wound, there's a gift. You know, I think that's kind of like a classic thing in shamanism is when you go into a trauma, yes, you heal the trauma, but you also bring a gift back with you. Right. And I think, you know, if we can look for that gift, then it really can empower us to move forward, you know, with the fullness of our, our being. So, yeah, I think it's both. Mm. Yeah, I love I love you bringing attention to that because like my grandfather, who I'm named after, gosh, like I was just on a when I was leading the the men's fasted hike recently this this one day thing, and we were walking and there was bay, bay leaf trees, and so we're walking and all of a sudden I just got hit with this smell of bay leaf, and I was like immediately, immediately, Grandpa came into my vision and what mm-hmm. he represented to me. So I grabbed a leaf and just smelled it for the first portion of the hike. And he was always a man who no, like he was a farmer in Sicily. That's really how he made his whole life was farming. And so very humble living, but was the type of guy who would literally give the shirt off of his back for someone else. And I remember uh, one of my fondest memories was he was so sneaky, dude. When we were living together, when my family moved to California, we, he took us in and we, we lived with them. And he would, at night, when people were sleeping, he would take their cars, like my mom, dad, or whoever, my uncle who lived with us too, he kind of took us all in uh, or had us live in there. And he would fill up everyone's gas tank. And then all of a sudden in the morning, people would be like, you know, going to work or whatever. And they'd be like, what the, what happened? And he would pretend like he didn't know, you know? And so just the generosity, the giving, the model for the family and showing up, 
And it all all those memories came in when I had that smell. And so, yeah, there's there's absolutely these positive traits. So my grandfather too stands out uh, as a big, 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 beautiful light that that I hope the qualities of him that have inspired me also uh, exude or get passed on to Luca as well. Greg, as we continue, uh, you know, continue on and begin transitioning, I would love for you to hear, you've referenced a few times the new course that you've got going. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gone through not all of it, but a good majority of it. And it's fantastic. And I mean that, and I'm not just saying it. I can tell your heart, your soul, this topic, this area just exudes out of you. And the program's fantastic. So I'd love for you to share just a bit about that program, how people yeah. can find it. And uh, yes, please. Yeah, this this program is very special to me. Mm. You know, when I when I filmed this program, there was something about this course that it came from a deeper place inside of me. It was coming from such a place of authenticity, but my own life experience. And it was funny, like, I actually filmed some of the videos first time around, and some of it was some of the videos were scripted. And then I watched and I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we're going back and doing this again. And I threw out the script and I just allowed it to come through me. Like I would just hit record and I had nothing planned. Wow. And I just allowed, especially in the energetic clearings with the EFT practices, where I'm taking people through tapping techniques, repeat after me's energetic clearings. And all of that was just really my life journey coming out in service to others. And that's what this course really is. It's just everything that I've learned kind of walking my own path and seeing all of these archetypal patterns that show up and creating essentially a trail guide for people to walk through this with me together to understand these patterns in their own life. So I took the seven core archetypes that I feel like are at the foundation of the healing journey, which are the four survival archetypes, the child the victim, the saboteur, and the prostitute, which we've talked about a little bit today, but also in our first episode. And then I added the mother, the father, and the imago day. The mother and father, because mom and dad are where a lot of these patterns come from. Mm. And it also connects us to their lineage, which as we've talked a little bit about today, a lot of the ancestral dynamics kind of show up in these archetypal patterns. And then the imago day being the image of God, of whatever we perceive God to be in our own life is what informs all of these archetypes. Mm. So it's an important thing to really explore within ourselves as to how our image of God informs our child archetype, informs when we feel victimized, informs when we self-sabotage, informs when we step into the prostitute. So I took these seven archetypes and for each archetype, there's four videos that you go through. The first video is we explore all aspects of the archetypes. You can really come to an understanding of how this archetype might show up in your own life. Then in the second video, I take you through a meditation to connect with the archetype, to cultivate a relationship with it, and to actually track it back to the origin of when that contract was created. Mm. 
Then in the third video, I take you through an EFT practice, which is a tapping technique coupled with a repeat after me and certain visualizations where we do an energetic clearing for all of the shadow expressions of that archetype. Mm. So we go explore the archetype. I'm going to take you into meditation so you can cultivate a relationship with it. Then we're going to do an energetic clearing. And then in the fourth video, we do some integration and journaling work. So I created this almost like systematic approach to moving through the seven archetypes. So it's not just me giving you kind of like theoretical information. It's like healing happening in real time, Mm. right? So just by going through the program, all of these things are being renegotiated and the shifts are being made right in real time as you're going through it. So it's a course that I'm so proud of and I'm so excited to share it with your listeners. Um, So if they go to healing4d.com forward slash HCA, which is healing your core archetypes, HCA, and they use the code Mike20, they can get 20% off. Um, But you'll have a link in the show notes, which will be your link for people to use, um, which will take them right there. Um, But I'm so excited to share this program with you guys. Amazing, dude. Thank you so much. One, for that discount, but two, for just putting your heart and soul in it, man. Like, I like want to celebrate you for going with your gut and and reshooting that stuff, going off script, because that is really when your heart comes through, man, and all of our hearts, when our hearts comes through, there is nothing more deeply connecting to that. And you're doing such heart-centered work. And so I think that is one of the most important things. Like, the energy behind it and that comes through it is so important. And one last question on that that I was curious about, obviously, because it's a home study program or a home program mm-hmm. people can do at their own pace. Is there a suggested like frequency or duration? Like how long would it take someone to go through this? Or is it totally individual based off of what they're working through in terms of from start to finish of the program? Yeah, it might vary. You know, some people might move through it, you know, pretty quickly. If there's seven archetypes, some people might do one archetype a day and move through it in a week. Okay. But, you know, I've suggested to people that are currently going through it to take a little bit more time Mm. to space it out and maybe do one archetype every three days, Mm. which would extend it to like a 21 day program where you're going through the meditations and the energetic clearing practices multiple times before you move on to the next archetype. Cool. So I think a great way to do it is to go through each archetype three times Hmm. before you move on to the next one. And I think each time you go through the meditation and do the energetic clearing work, it kind of takes you a layer deeper Right. So I think if you move through it too quickly, you're not going to get into the depths of, you know, some of these patterns where if you take a little bit more time going through it, it might actually have more of an impact. So I think every three days going through each archetype would be an awesome pace. Beautiful, man. Thank you for sharing that. Well, my brother, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your love. Very, very, very grateful for you. And uh, until the next time, brother, thank you again. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow the podcast on Apple and leave a review. It means a lot. We all have a path and I'd love to hear how this podcast has inspired you in some way to live yours.